Doesn't it just feel so good to greet your brothers and sisters and friends and new friends and family from out of town? And it's just wonderful. It really is. Will you please pray with me? Wonderful God, you have, you have all that you are to give us. And yet we can only take little pieces of it at a time. We just, it's just too, too marvelous, too wonderful. So for the piece that we can take this morning, we pray that we will listen and pay attention and that our spirits will be moved, that our spirits will be moved to one more bite of transformation. Illuminate our minds and hearts. And we pray this in your name. Amen. The text this morning is, is um, what they call eschatological. I'll explain that in a few minutes, but really it's a strange text that you know people often wonder, why on earth would a preacher pick a text like this to start off Christmas? Because um, really, sh- shouldn't you be talking about silent nights and babies and you know, wise men and all the wonderful things that we come to expect around Christmas? But it has a, a really rich... Heritage. This morning, when we come to this text, we know that Jesus has been talking with his disciples, and he's been saying some curious things. He's been talking to them about the temple being raised and the temple falling before they know it, and so there's this interesting line in the text before the one that we're going to read today, and it says, they came to him privately, and I was always intrigued by that, because it doesn't say it very often, but it does say it. They came to him privately, meaning they didn't want to call him out on it, you know, in front of everybody, or maybe perhaps it meant that they felt that it was something that he would only want to share with them, or who knows, but it's a, it's an intriguing line. They came to him privately and asked, so, uh, Jesus, when is all this going to happen? That was their question. So when we come to this text, this is Jesus' response to them. This is from Matthew 24, 36. But about that day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. For as the days of Noah were, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing until the flood came and swept them all away. So too will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two will be in the field, and one will be taken, and one will be left. Two women will be grinding meal together, one will be taken, and one will be left. Keep awake, therefore, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an unexpected hour. That's the word of the Lord. So, like I was saying, it, we start off with this eschatological text that, in a way, is, is quite puzzling, and it, but intriguing at the same time. And why do we start with this text? There are two seasons in the church season that we do this, Advent and Lent. And what we do is we take life, 
and all its ordinariness, and we slow it down real slow. And we begin to live out the story of Christ from beginning to end. We walk with Christ. We walk with God from beginning to the new beginning. So Advent is really a time that we bookend the old world before Christ and the new world when Christ is born that ends Advent. So we start off with these texts about the coming of the Messiah, the true coming. And of course, it's been reinterpreted and reinterpreted quite often where we are also interpreting it because Jesus is talking about it as a second coming, which it could be. But Jesus definitely is talking about the coming. And he talks about Noah, meaning when Jesus comes, it's because God has decided it's time. And that's all we really need to know. The theme of this section from one of Matthew's much longer discourses is really the significance of watchfulness, paying attention. And in, in light, certainly, of the uncertainty of the coming of Jesus. So verse 36 then makes a startling claim. And it makes this claim. But about that day and hour, no one knows. And then he says this, which, which sends all the theologians just scurrying off to read their books and their, and their scripts and, and the ancient languages to find out what exactly he meant by this. Because he says, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, but only the Father, meaning not even me. I don't even know when the coming, I don't even know when the second coming is. And it's remarkable how many interpreters, how many people in the world believe that they can accomplish what the Son confesses that he can't. Because we have all kinds of people reading the stars and reading this and reading that to figure out when is Jesus coming again. When basically what Jesus is saying, I guess if I wanted to just end this sermon right here, I would just say Jesus basically says, well, you better act like I'm coming every day tomorrow and pay attention and watch out. And not only pay attention and watch out, not only be good, but, but live fully with the joy that is ours in living uh, in a, as a reflection of God. It's... Um, so its meaning has been the object of so much speculation and so many books and so many people just, just, just struggling over this, so much to the point that they don't even get the point of what Jesus is trying to say. And I know that whatever you, however you come out of that debate, whether you come out of that debate, oh, Jesus is coming here. I remember, uh, you know, there are um, this uh, whole network of thinking that Jesus, they have this setup, this formula, where there's this thousand years of suffering. And so if you're an amillennialist, you believe that Jesus is coming before the suffering. If you're a postmillennialist, you believe that Jesus is coming after the suffering and all of this suffering and, and going on. And I can remember one of my Old Testament professors saying he was a panmillennialist. And we're all like, what does that mean? What does that mean? And he said, I just think it's all going to pan out. And he was trying to tell us basically what, what Jesus is trying to tell us. of Why would we be consumed with the worrying of what it's going to be when we have enough on our plate for today? 
We also know that however you come out on that debate, whether you're pre, post, or pan, millennialists, it really induces a sense of humility for wherever you come out. There's a sense of humility that in your effort to read God's mind and in your effort to read the future as though it were a commodity to open or or for us that we are somehow in charge of it, it really induces a sense of humility about that and says, by the way, you don't know the future. We can plan for it, certainly, and, and we need to be smart. But to be wound up in the future means that the present has no place. And really the present is all you've got. You don't have the future. The past is, sits here. But this is the only thing that you have, tangibly, right now, today. And it also reminds us of the profound biblical faith that God is sovereign over everything. That God is certainly in control over everything. However metaphorically, however mythologically, Jesus in this discourse tells us that God who created history at the beginning not only goads us forward, but is also the goal of all history. And that's remarkable. So in a way, we, we kind of do know the future. We know that the future lies with God. And however we get there and whatever time we get there is in God's hands, but we do know the future. So in Advent, what we do is attend to liturgy. And the liturgy means the music and the um, pastoral care and the Christian education and all of these things. And what we try to do is pay attention to the fact that we are reminding ourselves that we belong to God and that God has a larger story and all of our stories fit into God's larger story. So we begin to sing songs from ancient times, and they are all reminders so that our memories are sparked. This passage calls us away from historical anxiety, and that's a wonderful thing. Because honestly, if Jesus is hopeful about the future, and he says he didn't know about the future himself, couldn't we live out of Jesus' hope? I mean, Jesus is the one actually physically living in it. Could we not borrow that hope ourselves and live in the hope of Christ? One of the gifts, honestly, that I most desire for um, people, for everybody, is really to be able to trust in the future without controlling it or feeling that they are controlling it and, and knowing the details. You know, one of the things that that I try to do here is a, a ministry of prayer, and there, we're going to be doing these prayer projects and all this stuff. And a part of a prayer project is that you get a name, everybody in the congregation gets a name, and you have to pray for them. And the first thing people say was, well, what am I supposed to pray for? Tell me all the details. And the thing about the prayer project is, I don't, there's no details. I'm not telling you anything. Well, I need to call them then and find out what I should pray for. No, you can't call them. You're going to pray for them. And it's letting go of that controlling of saying, I need to know everything before I can go to God on their behalf. And it is a a wonderful discipline of simply coming to God with a face or a name lifted up 
And so it's such a great gift to understand that there's so little that we do control. We might as well just tend to the things that we, do, we can control. We can control what we have, we have for breakfast. We can control what we have for lunch. And maybe snacks in between. But there's a whole lot of stuff that we can't control. And so isn't it comforting, or is it, to know that God is the God of the future and that we can give that over to God? Because all our hope is founded in God. In other words, we say to God, if you're with me, what do I have to fear? Remember, uh, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. A few years back, um, before I came here, most of my whole career, 35 years in ministry, was in San Diego. And that's where my kids and my grandchildren live and all of that. And uh, then I got this thing in my head that I'm getting of an age where I thought, golly, am I going to spend my whole career in San Diego? And I can remember lifting up to God and saying, God, uh, wherever you want me to go, whatever you want me to do. And then at the end of it would be this little voice saying, as long as it's in San Diego near my kids, you know. And I got to this place in my own spiritual journey where I thought, what would happen if I stepped back and said, wherever, whenever, however, what would happen? And so the, it, through a very convoluted series of events, I received a call to go to South Carolina, Hilton Head Island, South Carolina. Now, I'd never heard of Hilton Head. I know you find that surprising, but I'm not a golf person. So I'd never heard of Hilton Head. I'd never been to the, even been to the South. I'd always been afraid of the South. And here I was called to Hilton Head, South Carolina. And the question was, are you going to go? Are you going to leave your family and go alone to a place that you don't know and you're really afraid of the environment and blah, 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 blah. And this, and this kept coming to me. This text kept coming to me. You know? Look, we're, I'm with you. So what do you have to fear? What, what could possibly be in the future that you could possibly fear if I'm with you? And doggone it, I thought, yes, I'm going to give it a shot and see what happens. So I went to South Carolina, was shocked at, uh, that on Hilton Head Island, there are really no Southern people. They're all from Iowa. And, and they're all from, uh, they're Yankees apparently, from the north. But I learned a ton there. I loved it. It was a great church. We did wonderful things. And, and even when it was crummy, even when I was homesick, even when, when things didn't work out, as it often happens in ministry, not one single second did I say I made a mistake. Because I thought, no, God is with me. So even in the bad times, I'm not alone. And I never felt less lonely than when I was there. It, it was amazing. But then, of course, I had, my daughter had children. I had to come back. So I came back after seven years, and that lesson, though, keeps unfolding to me. If God is with us, we have nothing, nothing to fear. This passage also helps us to understand that we, sometimes, that we have to look back sometimes, and that we can look back without fear or without apathy, because we're not afraid to look back. Even in this passage, Jesus lifts up this 
terrible circumstance of Noah. And he says, let's look, look back at Noah. And it's a cautionary reminder that when you ignore God, then you do at a great cost. And this tale reminds us that things were, were going along as though God wasn't there. But there's this wonderful word that I love, and I've come to understand in connection with God, it says, meanwhile. You know, while I'm trying to wring life out over here and fretting and, and, you know, God is like unfolding this flower next to me. And it's life unfolding. And if I can just breathe deep and I can set back a little bit and do what I'm supposed to do and let God do what God is doing, then this it's a lot less torturous than that, you know, pulling apart like I've got to be more, I've got to do more, I've got to have more. And it's this unfolding. It's really quite beautiful. And this is a reminder that sometimes by looking back at what God has done, we can have confidence in what God will do. And I thought this was an odd pairing. If you look back at what God did in the, this story of Noah's Ark, it's not really that comforting. But in a sense it is, because if you look at it as a story about redemption, about starting over, about making things brand new. That certainly rings a bell, doesn't it, with the God that we know. That God has the ability to renew, to recreate, to reimagine. And God empowers us with the same ability to renew, to recreate, to reimagine our own lives. And then there's this wonderful other word. Did I just make three R words? Oh my gosh. Renew, remember, and reimagine. I can't believe it. Okay, so the fourth word that I planned on saying was resurrection. So renew, remember, reimagine, resurrection. All these beautiful words that are so robust and so fleshed out and so full of newness and so full of excitement. They all belong to us because of this story. Part of the power of Scripture is that it gives a foreshadowing, not a blueprint, but a foreshadowing. Just like because it happens again and again uh, for what God is doing in our own time and what God will do because of what we've seen God do in another time. Part of the power is com of community, of being together, is that we can look back together. We can talk to each other about what God has been up to. We can see the path that God has made. I was with a couple of my friends over this um, Thanksgiving uh, vacation when I was with my family and they had something else to do a couple of my friends and I got together and we started talking about we've been friends for like 30 years since our children were in preschool and we started talking about the the seasons of our life that we've been together and it's it was so remarkable it seemed to bond us even closer at the end of that recollection of the things that we've shared we we look back together at the moments in our past when God was present. And when God was present to chasten us, because we need that sometimes. We're like children in a, in a sandbox throwing sand in each other's eyes. Or that one kid that's hitting somebody with a truck. You know, not that it's a boy, but anyway, but with a truck. And uh, we have kids like that in our sandbox. And then there's the little one sitting over there crying because, you know, no one will play with them. We have all these young lives, tender souls, your tender souls, 
in that big sandbox. And, and God chastens us and blesses us. And we find that there's hope and there's wonderful hope in admonition as well as in the future. So liturgy, what we surround it with, the scriptures, the texts we talk about, the beautiful, the Advent candles, the, the whole sense of the season of slowing down and walking with God through this beginning. We surround it with sermons, with hymns, and all of that. Because honestly, wouldn't it be a strange faith that would bring us to worship in Advent if we had no idea that God had come to us in Jesus Christ? Would it be strange to not already be on the other side of that? So actually, we wait in hope because of memory. Because we remember what God has done. What God has done, we remember now. And we have hope for the future because of memory. We understand that looking back, is often essential to moving forward. Maybe you have that in your own life. Maybe there's an unresolved issue that you've had before that you knew you had to put it right before you could move forward. You just knew. Maybe, you know, it's that old kind of cliche. Maybe you needed to say you were sorry or be forgiven or maybe you needed to clarify something or put something right or tie some loose end. Something you had to look back at in order to be let go and move forward. Sometimes when somebody is very, very, very angry, and they, there's no out, outer reason to be angry, at least at that moment in their life, you know, psychologists, therapists will take them back, and they'll find those moments that they were hung up by anger, and they stopped right there. It's called arrested development. Or not only did they stop right there in anger, but sometimes in sadness, sometimes in grief. Some, why can't we ever have arrested development in hope and happiness, you know? But no, we get arrested development in all the negative things. And something has to break us loose from that so that we can move forward. It's like, it's like we have something tied around us and we can't move forward, can't step forward, and that has to be cut. It has to be un unwound, unleashed. And Jesus says, looking back and figuring that out, can let you, you can let go and step forward. And Jesus, the life of Jesus also says, whatever it was, it doesn't hold you anymore because I untied it. I untied whatever holds you back, whatever has arrested your development so that you can't grow. And now there's absolutely no reason why you can't just grow, grow, grow. You're loose. You're free. You know, it's interesting. Because what I want to tell you today is that God comes to you. And I want to prepare you to recognize and receive God when God does come to you. Come is a gospel verb. And it's a distinctive biblical and Christian message more so even than the Old Testament message of God is, which defines this essence of God that we, that we try to wrap our mind around but can't. But the New Testament uh, foundation is God comes. God comes to us. And God is going to come again because that's the very nature of who God is. God 
comes. This is what God does. God is not a professor who delivers ideas to us. And God is not a social worker who arranges discussion groups among us to help us raise our awareness of things and to raise our standard of living. And God isn't a government agency bringing out the latest set of regulations so that we can stay out of jail and be good. God isn't any of those things. God comes. God comes. God arrives. God shows up. God comes the way a neighbor arrives at our door, knocks on the door, enters our house, and sits down, have a cup of coffee together. And God has been doing this for a very long period of time, showing up. And our Bible reports all those wonderful experiences of God showing up. And your very life is a report of God showing up. If you were to go home today and write just on a piece of paper a timeline of your life and look at the places that you could have gone and the place where you are, you're going to find places where God showed up and you didn't even know it. Right? Today, if you did it today, even no matter how aware you are, if you did that just for five minutes, you'll go, oh, oh, I think that was God. Jesus Christ is really the primary way in which we recognize both that God comes and the way God comes. So we look for Christ coming, right? And this scripture talks about looking for Christ coming in the sensational. But he keeps surprising us by coming in the ordinary. And Advent is a reminder to us of God coming in the ordinary because of the ordinary way God comes. In the ordinary way, in the baby, in the innocent child, in the dirty manger. I mean, the whole story is to tell us that it is the ordinary that, that is steeped in godness. The ordinary. The sensational has a way of catching our attention. We seem to be so fickle. Oh, it's big, it's large, that must be it. And here it is right here next to us. We look for Christ coming in the sensational, but, he, but Christ comes in the ordinary. Our Lord comes to us in our pain. Our Lord comes to us in our doubt. Our Lord comes to us in our families. Our Lord comes to us in our work. Our Lord comes to us in our community of living. Our Lord comes to us in our hardship. Our Lord comes to us in our victories. There is no place, no place, no time where God may not turn up, when God may not sneak in Christ, like the scripture calls him, a thief in the night. So should we be ready? Yeah. Every time Christ comes to us and we receive Christ, we get better and better and further along and more prepared when, for when Christ comes us at the ultimate meeting. Uh, the arrival that will complete everything that we understand about history. The scriptures tell us, trust, hope, and love. When the incomplete is made complete, trust steadily, hope unswervingly, and love extravagantly.
The greatest of these is love. And we respond to the God who acted in Jesus Christ, who acts now, and who will act in the consummation, the great coming together of history. Now, it's really fascinating, because in the next section in Matthew, if you want to read it, it will make it abundantly clear that we also have to keep awake to the needs of others. So it follows right on the heels of that. And there is no mistake about the way things are pieced together in Scripture. It doesn't just happen like, oh, and that's what happened? No, it's for a reason. So we talk about Christ coming and recognizing Christ as a sensational cloud coming in on a cloud with a trumpet call, but then it goes straight into recognizing Christ where Jesus reminds us that Jesus will appear right around the corner. And maybe Jesus will look like a hungry child. And maybe Jesus will look like a neighbor who has no coat. And maybe Jesus will look like a woman who is sick and lonely and despicable. Or look like a man who is in prison for doing terrible things. Maybe Jesus will look like that. And what are we told to do? We're told to be watchful, keep your eyes open, be alert. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for coming boldly and for coming quietly, for coming through the front door and down around the back 40, through the backyard and into the back door, and any way you please. We simply pray that our lives would be open to you, that we would remember who we belong to, that we would slow things down a little bit to think about life before you, life during you, and life after you. We're here to be with us. And we pray all of these things in your name. Amen.